So before we get into the message this morning, I, I, w- I was listening to the song. Um, one, one of the first lines says, uh, all my life I have been called unworthy. And, and just for a split second, I, I thought, um, you know, I, I don't feel like I've experienced that. Like I, pe- people, people aren't calling me unworthy. Like I don't feel that. And then something hit me. <laughs> Uh, other people may not, at least to my knowledge, say that I'm unworthy, but man, have I said that a lot to myself. Um, and I thought, boy, that is a lot different. All my life I've called myself unworthy, but God sees me in a different way. Um, we're actually going to going to talk about that a little bit today and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't planned um and I and I don't even know if by the time we get there I'll be able to pull that all together but um but but hopefully as we move through you'll see um how how the mentality needs to to change um as we talk about Israel um if you've uh, if, if your relationship, if you're in relationship, you ever been in relationship with somebody else, and if that relationship has never faced a test, so something difficult that you've had to, you know, work through together with somebody, if that relationship has never faced a test, can there really be any trust within that relationship? If there's never been anything that has tested it, can there really be any trust? Um, let, me, let me say it another way outside of that relationship kind of um, metaphor. If personally you've never risked a, a, a fall, like, like you're going to do something that, that might not work. If you've never risked a fall, then how do you know that, that you won't fail? Or how do you know that you'll recover if you fail? Like if you've never taken a risk, you just don't know. You don't know if you're going to succeed or if you're going to fail or how you're going to recover from that. And so I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and, and, um, and, and they asked, like, how are, how are you and Andrea doing facing the, the pressures that, the, kind of the new pressures that have come in the last couple months with um, Trent's social media a- attention and, and the business stuff that's been going on. Like, how has your family kind of gotten through the last, the last few months, everything going on? And, and so my response um, really was, was, was kind of simple. I, I, I just said, um, you know, look, life is tough sometimes. Um, there's some, there's some late nights and there's some early mornings and there's just kind of all these things going on and, you know, you're, you're trying to juggle all of these things and keep all these things, um, going. But I I was like, you know, like we've been through it when, when Trent was at his worst, like we, we made it through that. And and so I'm confident that we're going to get through this, um, because we're, we're going to do it together. Like that's just... 
how we faced everything. So how we faced every test, every struggle, every difficulty. We've just kind of done it together. And so there's a, a high level of trust there in that relationship because it's been tested in, in the past. The only way to really be confident in difficult circumstances is to have faced trouble in the past and survived it. Because when you have that experience, when you've gone through it and you've come out the other side, as you begin to face those difficult times again, you, you have some confidence to say, we've, we've been through it before, we're going to get through it this time. So we've been talking throughout this um, series, Out of Darkness, about how God was introducing himself to the people of Israel, but not just introducing himself to the people of Israel. Like, remember, they knew about him, but they didn't really know him. And so he wasn't just introducing himself to the people of Israel, the chosen people, but also to Egypt and really to the rest of the world who worshiped a whole bunch of different gods. The world really, um, throughout the world at that point, it was uh, what's called pantheistic. And, and pan just means many gods, okay? So pantheists, they worshiped a whole lot of, of gods. And so the one true God, the God of the Hebrew people, the God who, who created everything and sustains everything, he was introducing himself to Israel, but he also kind of introducing himself to the rest of the world. And so while God was rescuing Israel, he was also reaching out to everybody else. And, and, and so what we see in the Exodus is, is really a much bigger picture of what's happening on, on kind of the world stage. Because we tend to think of it, I think, as we read the story, we tend to think of it really just in terms of Israel. God's relationship with Israel, with his chosen people, and what he's doing with Israel, how he's interacting with Israel. But every other nation of the world was watching what was going on. So one of the things that just is, is amazing to me in the story of the Exodus, we have God leading the people through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at, at night. So you've heard that story, right? So there's this giant cloud during the day and, and this giant, like, huge bonfire thing. At night. Like, like, I don't think this was just, it wasn't a candle, okay? It wasn't a candle, it, it was out in the desert. We've like lit the whole town. on. It's a huge column of fire going up to the sky. You could see it. Like imagine, imagine this for a minute. For a fire to be visible or a cloud to be visible by maybe as many as four or five or six million people spread out around this thing, it would have to be pretty big. For everybody to see. In fact, when Israel gets out of, of Egypt and they finally, they're in the desert and they're wandering around, one of the things that they do for one of the feasts is they build huts uh, out in the wilderness. They get sticks and they gather sticks and they build these huts. And the hut, uh, the top of the hut is supposed to be open so that they can see God from inside the hut. Okay, I don't know if you understand, you have to talk to um, DJ maybe later about the geometry of this. But if you have a column uh, up and down this way, and you have a hut on the ground that has a hole in the top, 
The farther that hut gets away from wherever that column is, the higher the column has to be, right? In order to, because of the angle, in order to be able to see it through the top of the hut, it has to be really tall. How far do you think four or five million people had to be spread out around this pillar of fire and cloud and still be able to see the column from inside their hut? Okay, this was not just a little, this was huge. It was huge. And so as God leads the people through the desert, every nation of the world, really, I mean, not word of mouth, but every nation around can see the presence of God in the, in the people of Israel. So it's, it's really this, it's this amazing thing. And so it wasn't just about rescuing Israel. It was, it was really about reaching out, God saying, no other God has ever done anything like this before. And so if you can see this, you can see me. And so he was reaching out to all of these people. He was showing his power over all of their false gods. Right, And so God was displaying his power really for the whole world to see. And so the Exodus story is much more than just a freedom story for Israel. It's a love story. It's a story of redemption and a story of rescue, a story through which God is proving himself capable and caring. A God who is looking for, for far more than just a, a casual kind of fling thing, like just make some offerings once in a while. This, this, God, this God is looking for a long-term relationship with people, something that we'll find out later is called a covenant. So God is building up to this huge thing, and he's introducing himself really to the whole world. But before God calls the people to covenant relationship, he has to give them the opportunity, opportunity to see him. He's got to give them the opportunity to get to know him and who he is and how he works and, and his characteristics, right? It's, uh, the, the kind of things that drive him and, and how he functions. And, and so just like a parent who might be leading a child to trust them over time, God is proving himself faithful so that the people will follow and, and so um, if, you're, if you're a parent, you, you have a child, and um, you, you have that child, like first they, they kind of just, you know, they're learning to walk, and they kind of fall into your arms, right? You remember, you remember that? And you had a little, this is a long, long time ago for some of us, where they're walking across the floor, and they're kind of stumbling, and they get ready to fall, and as a parent, you kind of scoop in, and you, and you catch them right before they hit, hit the ground. And then, and then later, they're, they're up on the couch, and they're wobbling around or rolling around. They get ready to fall off, and you catch them just before they hit the ground. And then as they get older, what happens? Now they're, now they're jumping off the bunk bed into your arms. And now they're, they're jumping off some tractor or the roof or whatever. And so we, you build that trust with your kids. They go, like, Dad's going to catch me. And I think I've shared this story before, but our youngest son, TJ, we were at the um, state fair up in Hutch, and he and I had, had climbed up into one of those great big, I don't know, some big John Deere gleaner thing. or I, No, that's a brand. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. It's a big, huge green and yellow thing. And we climbed up into the top of it. It was like way over my head. And we were coming down, and I got down first. And I remember kind of looking up at TJ. I don't even think I said anything. Maybe I said jump. I don't know. But I, but I looked away. And then... 
I caught him in the corner of my eye, flying through the air with the greatest of ease. And I, I caught him about right here. <laughs> he got that far down. Oh, my goodness, he's coming. Uh, and so you catch him. And so that trust is built over time through the little things and, the, and then the big things. And so this is what happened, this is happening in the story of, of God and the Israelite people. Trust, like love and like, like friendship, it's not developed when everything is going right it's developed best when everything is going wrong. And, and so when you're in school and you get your lunch tray and you're walking and, and you trip and, you, and everything spills and everybody laughs at you, you learn who your friends are in, in those moments. <laughs> And, and, and when you're, you're having a struggle, like when there's a virus that comes and it costs you your job and, and you're stuck at home with just your, with just your wife and, and your kids um, and, and life is just kind of bearing down, um, you, you learn what, what love is in those, in those moments. And, and when you wander in the desert with a few million of your closest friends and you face an enemy army and you face a lack of water and you face no stable food source, that's when you learn to trust this God that you really don't know anything or much about. And so it leads us um, right to, to the bottom line um, to today, and that is that trusting God is developed through... Oh, whoops. Sorry, Julie. Bring that up later in the message. Okay, uh, trusting God is developed through trying circumstances. Trusting God's developed through trying circumstances. And, and so if, if you've been, I, I was talking to a, 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 a church leader guy, uh, the Nexus uh, leader, and we were just talking about life. And we were talking about some of the church planters that um, plant churches through Nexus, uh, the Nexus organization. And he, and he made this statement I thought was pretty good. Um, we were talking about different church planners and kind of the things that they had faced, the things that they had done. And, and his, his statement, we were talking about somebody said, um, he said, that individual has not yet faced a crisis. And, and he basically was saying, this, this church planter, um, where there's, the jury's still out on him because he hasn't faced a crisis. And, and we have to face those crises to know whether... Like how we're going to stand. Are we going to be able to make it through or, or is, it going to, is it going to take us down? So today we're going to look at two major parts of the Exodus story. The, the travel and the, the talk. And, and we're going to see how God uses all of the events of, of the Exodus to help the people of Israel develop trust in him for the big stuff that, that they're going to face and the little stuff. And, and this trip, this journey through the desert, it wasn't easy, but like developing trust never is easy. And in fact, it, not easy is the best way to develop that trust. And so if Israel is going to be God's people and, and a people that will help the nations of the world see God, because that was the ultimate goal of God's relationship with, with Israel was that every nation of the world would come to Israel to worship God. If that's going to happen, then the people need to trust him. And so let's jump into Exodus chapter 13. During the day, the Lord went ahead of his people in a thick cloud. And during the night, he went ahead of them in a flaming fire. 
That way, the Lord could lead them at all times, whether day or night. And so, um, this is God's goal, to lead the people of, of Israel, no matter what the circumstance. And so, for them to trust his presence and his protection and his provision, even when they didn't understand his plan. And, um, and, and so that's really like, that's what's going on. And so the Exodus story really is an opportunity for the people of God to know the person of God. And, and so this is much bigger story than just rescuing them from, from Egypt. So ultimately, God isn't just saving them. I don't know if this is working or not. Is this not working? Is this working? I don't know. Oh, no, you're right. Never mind, Julie, you got it. You got it. I'm just losing my head. God isn't just saving them from their slavery. He's not just saving Israel from their slavery. He's, he's saving them from themselves. And so there's this whole big process happening. So as we go through the Exodus journey, it's pretty easy to see that the slavery of Israel in Egypt is a metaphor for humanity's slavery to sin, right? So Israel's story of slavery in Egypt, everything was going great. It was good. They were comfortable. And then all of a sudden they're plunged into this, this slavery. It's a metaphor for our slavery to sin. And so what starts out as innocent or unintended can quickly enslave us. And, and so as I was thinking about the, this this week. Um, it can't become an addiction if it never begins, like, like every addiction that, that we engage in, every addiction starts w- when we pick it up, when we watch it, when we engage in it. And, and if we never do that, if you never kind of cross that line or take that step, there, there's really not much danger of being addicted to something. If you never take that first step, and, and so it can't become an addiction if it never begins. When left on our own, just not human nature, when left on our own, we don't naturally do the right thing. I mean, we sometimes do. We, we sometimes, sometimes we can do the right thing. Sometimes we can do the nice thing. Sometimes we can do the honest thing. Sometimes we can do the, uh, what's the word, that altruistic thing, like completely for the other person, not for, like sometimes we can do that, but we don't do that consistently. Like it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work for us to overcome our, our selfish nature in order to do the right thing all the time and at the right time. And so, um, p- part of our um, part of this struggle, this sin that we have, part of it is our impatience, right? I, I don't want to wait for God, and so I'm trying to do things on my own. Uh, part of it is a desire for our own pleasure. I'm going to do these things because because this is what I want, and, and maybe it's uh, sleep, maybe it's food, maybe it's whatever, and and we we're like I want that, and so I in, engage in that, but it, but it all leads back to the reason um, that humanity has always chased after false gods. No matter what it is that we're going after, it all leads really back to the same false gods. Um, Power, which often comes in in the form of uh, paper, money, uh, or pleasure. 
sex. And so really, the things that we do, they, they really just, they boil down to those same three things. And we talked last week about how when God uh, did the plagues in Egypt, he was really combating the false gods of Egypt, and all of those false gods all came back to the same, to the same three base things. was part of what was going on between Pharaoh and God, right? Pharaoh believed himself to be a God, and so he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He was the God of his own life, and, and so the plagues, at least, at least a part of what was going on with the plagues, was to help Pharaoh understand who he really was, um, and that he was no match for a real God. And, and so whether it's, um, whether it's Pharaoh or Israel or us, uh, God isn't just saving from sin. He's saving from the God of self. And, and ultimately, as we said last week, that's the last God that has to be defeated in our lives, the God of self. And so the journey of Israel through the desert was a process that had to be completed for God to be able to do the rest of the things in the world that he wanted to do. And so step one, God had to remove Israel from their slavery in Egypt. He had to get them out of, of their slavery. He had to free them. He had to redeem them. He had to get them out of Egypt. And so we, we've kind of checked that box uh, last week. The plagues happen. Pharaoh says, uh, get out. The second big thing that's going to have to happen, and, and it actually turns out to be a much bigger deal than getting Israel out of their slavery, is God has to remove the slavery mentality from Israel. And so that's a much more difficult thing to do. And, and so it's, it's uh, seen multiple times in the first half of Israel's trip out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land. And the first one, it happens just a few days after they left Egypt. And so um, verse 5 tells us that Pharaoh and his officials, chapter 13, verse 5, tells us that Pharaoh and his officials realize what they've done. And, and I think this is really uh, key to what's going on. Pharaoh realizes what he's done after sending the Israelites away. And, and this is what he says, we let them get away and they will no longer be our slaves. That's what he was concerned about. Like, dude, you just not only lost your firstborn son, but every other family in the nation and every animal lost the, like, this is a big deal. And what is he concerned about? Our slaves got away. This is like, we got to do something about this. This is a big deal. Like, he didn't get the message. It, he just... I just, I just don't understand it. And so, so Pharaoh rallies the troops. He rallies the, the Egyptian army, and they, um, and they take off. And so look, Exodus 14. When the Israelites saw the king coming, so Pharaoh and his armies, they're chasing after Israel, uh, and they were frightened, and they begged the Lord for help. They also complained to Moses. Wasn't there enough room in Egypt to bury us? Is that why you brought us out here to die in the desert? Why did you bring us out of Egypt anyway? You were slaves. 
You were horribly oppressed. You were crying out to God for years to rescue and to save you. That's a dumb question. Like, you know while you're there. And so while we were there, they said, uh, 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 bring us out of Egypt. While we were there, didn't we tell you to leave us alone? Nope. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than die in this desert. So just a short time ago, Israel was crying out for help because of their slavery. And now they're saying, wait a minute, this is tough. This is difficult. We didn't think it was going to be this hard. And so um, we didn't know that we were going to face any trouble after we left Egypt. We thought it would just be all, you know, parties and everything. And so the cheers and the excitement from their release from slavery were quickly overshadowed by the fear of their, uh, the reaction to seeing Pharaoh again. And so they're excited, and then they're like, oh, oh no, we're going to die. Which kind of blows my mind, because I'm like, didn't you just see what God did over the last several years with these ten plagues? Like, this was a big deal, and, and, and now you're, you're whining again? Like, God's not big enough to save us from this too? So they'd already had like, like 11 reasons to trust God, the ten plagues and then their release. Uh, and, and, they, and they were just like, they were just like, whatever. Well, they're stuck. And the result in the story is that God parts the waters of the Gulf of Aqabah. And after Israel passes through the water on dry land, you remember the story, Pharaoh and his army, who had ample reason to trust that God was powerful and big enough to do whatever he, he wanted, right? So they've been through the 10 plagues. They understand God's favor of Israel, and they're still going after them. And Pharaoh has an opportunity to turn around, but the last God that has to be defeated in himself. And so he takes off and all of his army down through the water, and, and the waters crash in and, and, and drown them all, and, and they're all drowned. So look at the result. On that day, when the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shore, they knew that the Lord had saved them. Because of the mighty power he had used against the Egyptians, the Israelites worshipped him and trusted him and his servant Moses. So Israel gets to the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba. The Egyptian army, at least the major portion of the Egyptian army, is destroyed, and Israel celebrates. I mean, if you, if you read the story, this is where uh, they have this big song and this big celebration, and all this stuff is going on. They're very excited, and they're excited because in order to, for Egypt to get to them now, they have to go back to Egypt, rally more troops, and they're not going to be very good troops or very strong troops because all their best ones are now dead. And they're going to have to go all the way north around the Gulf of Aqaba and come all the way down. Basically, what this meant was Israel was actually free from Egypt. That, they're beyond the, the point of, 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 of being taken back to, to Egypt. And so the next several chapters, we, we see this pattern repeated. God proves himself able to protect them and then able to provide for them. But the Israelites' first response is always the same. They complain and they pretend like Egypt was the best place they ever lived. And, and so I, I just want to say, if you're new to following God, if you're new to surrendering your life to Jesus little bit by little bit, you're learning to trust him, you need to realize that, um, that you may start to retreat 
to the familiar when things begin to get tough. When you first come to Christ, it's, it's almost like a new relationship with somebody. You know when you, you meet that girl or you meet that guy for the first time and everything is wonderful? It's all rainbows and unicorns and there's, they're perfect. They can't do anything wrong. They're just wonderful, wonderful people. And then about six months or a year into your marriage, you go, there are some things that I just don't like about this, right? Like you, be, you begin, like those things begin to wear on you after a little, little while. And why doesn't he pick his socks up? And why doesn't she do this? And, and so those little, like at the beginning, it's great. And so this is kind of what happens. We come to Christ and we're excited to follow Jesus. And, and like all we see is this great stuff going on, but then the tests begin to come, right? This Satan goes, oh no, like I don't want it to be perfect for you. And so he comes after you and you begin to have these struggles. And so you need to, to realize that when those struggles and those tests begin to come, you may start to retreat to the familiar. It's the same for every, um, every addiction, right? Look, um, we go back, we always retreat back to where we think we belong. All my life, I have felt unworthy. And if I always feel unworthy, where am I going to retreat? I'm going to sabotage relationships. I'm going to sabotage jobs. I'm going to be a victim in this situation and that situation because I'm always going to go back to where I think I belong. And so a huge part of what God was trying to do with Israel was to get them to understand who they were in him. And so, uh, Julie, we're going to jump to Exodus 20, the next passage. God said to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt where you were slaves. All right, we have God bringing the people out. They face the water, they, uh, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. They pass through. They faced no water. They need water and there's no water. They face no food and God provides them food. And we get this whole big situation and, and, and all of it is God saying, look, I'm your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Israel or or out of Egypt. Like this relationship, he's trying to get them to understand this relationship. And so what we have in the rest of Exodus chapter 20 is the 10 commandments that God gives, right? Moses goes up the mountain, he gets the tablets of stone, he, he comes down. So in the 10 commandments, God was giving the people of Israel the terms for their covenant relationship. Where, where God says, I'm going to be your God and, and you're going to be my people. But it was also the means to how he would, or at least part of the way that he was going to remove the slavery mentality from the people of Israel. Instead of following the false god of, of Pharaoh or the numerous other Egyptian false gods that they, that they understood, that they served, that they had been worshiping, they were going to worship only the one true God. And like all of those other false gods that they had been worshiping, which only sank them deeper and deeper into the sin of indulgence, following God's terms in this relationship brought them freedom. And so the the 10, the primary 10 terms of the covenant helped Israel develop a national identity that set the people apart from every other nation on earth. And I, th- I think about a few hundred years back, 
to the beginning of our own country and our own constitution, which was designed to set us apart not only as a, a, a nation of, of free states, but United States, and to make this country different from every other country that existed on the planet, a people of morality and a people of decency. And so God's protection um, from, from Egypt, God's protection and provision help the people realize their position. So as God rescues the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt, they, they understand we're, we're chosen people. We're, there's something special here about us. We have this God who cares about us and loves us and gives himself up for us to rescue us and to save us out of this slavery. We're his chosen nation, chosen ultimately to make him known to all these other people. And so we've sang the songs, we're no longer slaves. We're not slaves to the sin of our past, but our goal is to then help every other person find that same real life that, that, we have, that we have found. And so this whole process was about helping them realize their position. And secondly, God's commands help them remain in the covenant. And so there are two parts to this Exodus story and this Exodus journey. And under the commands from this covenant, the people experience God's protection and provision more. So God is building this whole nation up. And he's continuing to help them understand who they are and how much they are loved. And what I think we forget in the Exodus story is that there was a much faster and much easier route from Egypt to the promised land. In fact, it was almost a straight line. It was a well-worn, well-traveled highway that got them from point A to point B very quickly. And instead of going this way, God takes the people down here and across the Gulf of Aqaba, and then they go up a little bit and they come back down, they get the commands and they go up and they eventually get up to, it could take them 40 years to do what they could have done in a, a matter of months. The trip was not that long, even though they were walking. But God takes them on this huge, big journey to get to this place and it's all the, the end result that, that they're going to end up in the promised land but the Israelites and also the Egyptians and also every other nation in that area would not have learned who God was or the truth about who they really were without that difficult journey and so Egypt needed to know that their gods were nothing and Pharaoh, in particular, needed to learn that lesson, that he wasn't God of his own life. And Israel needed to shed their slavery mentality in order to take on their role of God's chosen people. And so it's the challenges of life that we face that build the most character. When you're learning to follow God, there are going to be difficult times. In fact, Jesus said, not just when or if, I mean, he said, persecution will come if you follow God me. But when you don't understand the plan, you need to trust the process. God is trying to do something way bigger in your life than you can imagine right now. And if you're going to learn to trust God, there are going to be trying times. If Israel had not learned that they could trust God, 
they would have never attempted the things that God instructed them to do later. Had they not learned to trust God in in the desert, had they not seen the things that he had done, when they finally crossed the Jordan River and they come into Jericho and they face the first battle of clearing out the promised land, what do they do? They march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, and then on the seventh day, they, they march seven times, and the walls of the city fall out. That, they would never have done that had they not faced the time in, in the desert, had they not learned to trust God. And the same is true for you and I. Um, if you don't believe that you can trust God, that he won't show up, that he won't help, that he, that he won't be there when you need him to, then you will not try the things that he asks you to do. If, if you don't think that he's going to do what he said he's going to do, you won't try to do those things. And so um, Sarah was talking in communion about how we live with a closed fist or, or an open fist. When it comes to that kind of life, if I don't trust that God is going to give me what I need, if I give it out, how can I live that way? I won't. And I'll live with that closed fist. And, and so um, it's why the disciplines in our lives, things like tithing and serving and disciple making, it's why they're important. Because that they're the foundational things for every future thing that God wants to accomplish through your life. So we started out this morning in Exodus 13, um, 21. Trust, uh, if you're going to learn to trust God, there are going to be um, trying times. If Israel had not learned that they could trust God, they would have not attempted those things. During the day, the Lord went ahead of the people in a thick cloud, and during the night, it was a pillar of flaming fire. And that way, the Lord could lead them at all times whether day or night. God's goal for you and I is to follow him at all times. It's called faith. And it doesn't come into play um, just when we're in trouble or we're facing pain or difficult struggles. Real faith is trusting God's protection and his provision as you walk by his commands in covenant relationship. Real faith is saying, God, I trust you enough to live by your commands and the way that you tell me to live. Love God, love others, pray for your enemies, pray for those who who persecute you. Give and it will be given to, to you. As we live by those principles that God has given us in his word, we prove the faith that we have in him. And so living by those things, making present the kingdom of God in our life by living uh, by his commands, it's, that's trusting God's protection and his provision. It's saying, God, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand why you do these things, but I'm going to do them anyway. It's trusting through the entire process and not just in times of pain. And this requires us to be disciples who look more like Jesus every day by living according to his commands so that we can then invite others to be a part of his covenant people. So sometimes the things we do, they don't, they don't make sense. 
And, and I think that's why it's what we experienced yesterday. People coming up and going, wait a minute, you're giving away free food and you're not just trying to like get us to come to your church or give us this thing or get like, no, we're just, we're just giving you food because we, we want to help build community and, we, and, and ultimately want you to come to know, to know Jesus, but we're not going to shove it down your, your throat. And, and so it's doing things that the world thinks like, that's just not how you do stuff. But when you trust God, that's, that's what it looks like. So the challenge, the challenge this, this week is to um, determine, is there an area of my life where I'm not trusting God? There, there are part of my life where I'm not walking according to his commands. And if I'm not walking according to his commands, I'm not trusting him in everyday life. What are we doing? How am I doing it? How can I help every person possible find real life in Jesus if I'm not looking more like Jesus every day? We need to come out of our slavery and then we need to get the slavery out of us. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and thanks for all you do for us and thank you for sending your son and the power of your Holy Spirit to help us live the the, the the life of trust in in you. And so thank you, God, for the difficult times that we have faced and that we're going to face because they help to build that that trust in you so that we can face the next thing that's going to come to us in this life. God, thank you. We love you. We thank you for loving us, for sending us your son, for rescuing us from our slavery and help us to know to remember, to walk, and to stand in who we are as your chosen people, chosen to be a light to others, chosen to help every person possible find real life in Jesus so that they can themselves can look more like Jesus every day. Thanks for loving us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, don't forget uh, hot dogs and um, burgers. I think they're out there. On that side, uh, chips, uh, water, all that stuff. And next Sunday, there's a potluck after church. Uh, So plan on staying next Sunday after church. Uh, I don't know where you can get more information. We'll have stuff on um, Facebook. If you have questions, talk to, I don't know, Pam or some of the ladies, uh, whoever knows what's going on, because I don't. Anyway. Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.